The Old Testament reading is found from the book of Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? And what have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these words of Jesus this morning, that you would give us wisdom you give us ears to hear and wisdom to understand the things that you're saying to the church and how we might be individuals and how we might be a community that inhabit the beatitudes that Jesus offers us. Lead us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.
So during uh, this season of Epiphany and on into the Lenten season, we are thinking about the reign of Jesus as King by looking at his politics. And particularly to help us with that, we're going to be studying the Sermon on the Mount, which is that text in which Jesus casts and enlarges uh, his vision of the world that he says is breaking into our world uh, in him. In the midst of ordinary, glorious, and even the very broken spaces of life in our world. Now, as Matthew tells the story of Jesus, uh, of his life, there are lots of echoes from other parts of Scripture, and notably in the early part of Matthew, particularly, there are echoes of the Exodus story. Remember, God calls Jesus, his son, out of Egypt. Jesus passes through the waters of baptism. He moves into the wilderness of his own temptation. And here, in this particular sermon, Jesus begins to describe what life in the land of promise will look like, the kingdom that is broken into our life. It's the image or the uh, enlarged imagination that he would offer the disciples as they thought about what it meant to follow him in the work and the life that he was doing, and that he was calling them to invite generations of people after them into as well. It's a rich description of blessing that flows in this land of heaven come to earth the space of God's world brought near our world in the person of Jesus who is with us. The Beatitudes are very simple statements. You probably remember parts of them, if not all of them, and they enlarge our understanding of God's kingdom. What does heaven on earth look like? Jesus opens up the social imaginary that shaped his own way of being human in our world, God in person in our world, and he tells us not only about the blessed life of heaven on earth, but of the kind of human actors that God is inside of our world and that he's changing us to be in our own discipleship as we follow Jesus. This is the world of blessing that Jesus urges us to repent toward, if you will, to do a U-turn from whatever other notion of the good life that shaped our imagination and our lives and the world as we turn to Him and begin to express a far truer expression of our own human identity in connection with who Jesus is. So let me mention a few things that strike me about the Beatitudes. And the first is just this, is that the politic of Jesus' world is upside down relative to our own world. In other words, it looks very differently from the world that we actually inhabit. So you can imagine yourself perhaps maybe back in that early day and you're hearing these words of Jesus for the first time. Maybe you're in the crowd in that moment as you close your eyes and you imagine the scene of being there listening to these words flow off the mouth of Jesus. They're pithy statements. What would you hear? What would you begin to think as you heard these first words? So think, for example, just about the poor, Jesus' reference here. In our world, the poor are rarely engaged as persons that belong to much of anything. They're passed on the streets. We don't perceive them as possessing much value add. They're often even blamed for their own life circumstances by many. Jesus, however, makes poverty a spiritual model home within the neighborhood of his kingdom come to earth, the space of his blessing. Or think for a moment about sorrow and mourning. 
Often when we encounter that in our own lives or in the life of someone that we love and we even care about, we are very often eager to rush past the pain of loss to get beyond it to the other side. But Jesus says, enter it, sit with it, feel the feelings of the brokenness, the loss, the sin within our world and our own lives. Comfort begins with that kind of honest presence and engagement with mourning and grief. Or take Jesus' assertion about people that hunger after righteousness. It's important here, I think, to remember that this word that's translated righteousness very often and most often in Scripture simply is the word justice. So Jesus here imagines people hungering after justice in the same way that you and I become hungry and we want to eat or we become thirsty and we're moved to quench our thirst. Jesus says that this thirst or hunger for justice is as much a natural appetite of those who inhabit his kingdom as anything else. In this land of God's blessing, they are satisfied in every way, even the appetite of justice. But in our world, that's not often the case, is it? I think of Amanda Gorman's beautiful poem when she utters those beautiful words that the norms and notions of what just is is not always just is. Or think of the words of Martin Luther King Jr. when he very famously said that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. There's an acknowledgement of the very promises of Jesus regarding justice, and yet the lived reality in what just is is not just is. Jesus says this hunger is a part of his kingdom. Or think about those phrases that Jesus utters around the meek and the humble. He says they will inherit the earth. In fact, in our world, it seems that it's just the opposite that happens. It's the arrogant, the selfish, the prideful persons, the eager persons that seem to get most of the real estate. Jesus' hearers at the time would immediately hear these words, these phrases, these pithy statements, and they would shock them. Because what they're hearing is that the world of the future is quite different from the world of their present. And if they happen to be people who were literally poor or meek or individuals that dreamed of justice and thirsted for justice the way Jesus described it, they would also hear in these statements of Jesus that they belong, that this is your home, that God sees and hears you in all of your places of loss and difficulty, in all of the ways that you and I experience the world that is not as it should be. The Beatitudes are a rich description of how God operates in the land of our world when he gets near it in the person of Jesus. The left out wake up to their sudden inclusion. They experience the comfort of a God who has come near him. They hear of their own inheritance of the land of blessing. God's kingdom is upside down in nearly every way in terms of the way most of our world seems to operate. But secondly, the Beatitudes reveal to us something about God's own self as he was revealing himself in the person of who Jesus was. You could say that the Beatitudes 
are actually a very rich description of Jesus himself in our world as he lived, as he acted, as God in person in our world. And so therefore, because they are part of who Jesus is, they invite each of us actually, and each of the hearers then, to inhabit a very different way of being human, to reach toward a deeper expression of their own selves we might think of. The poor in spirit, think about them for just a moment in this connection. Maybe even just the poor people that are gathered on that hill, hill, to, hill that particular day, Jesus seems to have them in his mind as he begins to call them, as Matthew articulates it, to a poverty of spirit. Why does Jesus drag poverty into his vision of the kingdom in this kind of way, as a model home, if you will? Matthew includes that descriptor in spirit, which we might almost immediately say, Thankfully, he's softening the blow, but actually he doesn't. He amplifies it because he pulls this example of poverty from the real world and lives of the people that were listening and in the lives of our own world, the reality of poverty in our own world. And he says there's something about that as metaphor that ought to shape and characterize your heart, your spirit, if you're to be truly human. How do you live with poverty of spirit like that? So think for just a moment, if you will, in connection with this about your relative wealth or your relative riches, or if you will, your relative poverty for just a moment. If Jesus were to look on your life or to look on my life and he were to observe that there's an over-attachment to riches, right? And riches might be money, and it might be all kinds of other things. It might be having the resume that just never stops. It just keeps growing. It might be the catalog of knowledge that you've accumulated over your particular years that you find an identity formation inside of. What are your riches? And if Jesus were to look on you and say, hey, you're over-attached, you're finding your identity in this space rather than in me, how would you deal with that? How would you seek to detach from that over-attachment? I've been reading recently more and more of Ignatian spirituality, and in a book I was reading this particular last week, in fact, I was reading about Ignatian of Loyola, his advice on poverty. And one of the ways, he says, we commonly imagine responding to Jesus' teaching about riches and poverty, it might be to immediately imagine that we should start giving more money away, that we should do more with what we have, that we should connect with those who are poor in our world. And that's, of course, a wonderful thing to do. I once knew a man who loved having expensive cars. And whenever he would try to decide it was time for him to purchase a new, very expensive car, his way of checking himself was to sort of write a similarly sized check to the church that he was participant in. And that, of course, made the, hap the, you know, the finance team a little happy at that time of year. Maybe it made pastors happy-ish. But Ignatius would say this, that something like that doesn't get to the heart of our attachment to riches or poverty. We need to go deeper still. We need to seek to do something that Ignatian described as becoming indifferent to anything but the will of God as it's connected to our wealth, to our riches, to what we have. To be poor in spirit in this sense means to live with radically open hands around that which we have and to simply want 
to discover what is the will of God for me in this broken world with that which I've been graced. To be indifferent to wealth is to find freedom to actually live as a steward of whatever you have toward God and toward all of those that God would invite us to participate in life with. This kind of poverty is a way of being human that fits the future kingdom that Jesus describes in the Beatitudes as breaking into the ordinary spaces of life. When we become indifferent in this way, we are at liberty to give differently. And you can imagine that if you were one of the poor that were listening that particular day, something about this message might feel really attractive because suddenly there's a place for you not only in the future, but that actually begins now in the reality of your relative poverty today. Jump into the blessed or the meek statement that Jesus offers. Meekness or humility is a characteristic that we often confuse in many different ways. We think it's about bad-mouthing ourselves or denying gifts that we actually have. I love the way Thomas Merton tweaks some of this misunderstanding. He says, actually, humility is being exactly who you are, gifts and all, the gift of you for the sake of the world. So think about a world in which a humanity that exhibits true meekness would be true. You see, the only way that the land or the earth or a country or a community becomes a fruitful context of life is when those who inhabit it live in a meek way toward themselves and God and one another. When human beings hold and leverage all that they have, the gift of themselves, the gift of their resources, the gift of their knowledge is collaboratively alongside of one another as a part of the greater community for the common good. We live as a blessing one toward another. Then the land actually becomes a place that flows with milk and honey, as the Old Testament imagines. Jump forward to this last paragraph. Blessed are you when you're persecuted and reviled for my name. Rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. Again, a thing that we might find a little bit easily misunderstood in our particular context because there are actually lots of ways in which Christians and the church bring about insults on themselves, right? Because we live hatefully or in fear or out of white supremacy, we might even sort of argue, or in a, in a sort of a manner outside of, inside of Christian nationalism and so on. In other words, there are lots of things about the church that even Jesus himself would reject and does reject. The Christianity that Jesus urges us toward isn't about enduring those kinds of insults. Jesus is talking about the way of love that marked his own life. He's talking about people that begin to inhabit that life of love as he inhabited that life of love. As poor in spirit, as those who mourn alongside of other mourners, as those who are meek and humble, leveraging all that they have for the sake of others, as those who engage in the costly effort of peacemaking, of being a bridge across great divides, of those who practice what it means to hunger and to thirst for more and more and more justice. He isn't giving us simply the label of Christian that is the problem. 
Jesus has in mind the way we live life, being like God in his life in the earth. And so a far truer expression of our own humanity. And when we're reviled like that, we should not despise it. We should welcome and understand the fact that we are like Jesus at that moment, reviled because of love. Love for God and neighbor, as it's articulated in these Beatitudes, is not always well tolerated in our world, as we just said, because the kingdom of God is an upside-down reality relative to our world. Jesus' own experience of living this way in the context of our own broken world was that he died, was crucified. But Jesus says the life of heaven is breaking into these moments marked by loss and hate, and that God's world will prevail, will stand the test of time. And the point or the invitation for all of us is this practice of repentance and faith, that is, engaging in this U-turn from whatever we have previously identified as our identity and our meaning and our hope and our confidence in the future, moving and turning away from that toward Jesus himself and the promises of his real kingdom. It is to enter the invitation of becoming more human, not less human, of living more faithfully in the place of this earth now and not simply waiting for the future coming of God's kingdom. God in grace has not left us to the norms and notions of what just is, but he's broken in and he enlarges our imagination that we would want more, that we would delight in God who wants more for us. So as we think about these Beatitudes, simply this, may God give us grace to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and more grace to receive what he's saying to each of us as we hear these common and familiar words of beatitude this morning. May we inhabit them, may we live in their fullness and so experience the blessedness of heaven on earth. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.